Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I am one of your hosts, John McMahon, and joining me on the other line, she's been talking shit about Congress people and mediocre dive bars in Washington, D.C., it's Danielle Hanley. Oh, hello. That one was really good. I was not expecting it and also really appreciated it. Thank you. Um, it's uh, it's episode four of season one of The American's Time. I'm, uh, I'm drinking tea out of a Christmas time mug that Danielle is very amused by. We're good to go. Wonderful. It says ho, ho, ho on it, but it's like, (laughs) it's such a good size mug that I can't even begrudge you the Christmas cheer. It's, it's, and I am, as Danielle could probably guess, generally opposed to Christmas cheer. And so, as a result of that, uh, my mother every year sends me like a new Christmas cheer thing. And the expectation (laughs) is that I take take a picture of it being like put in the apartment or me having coffee or tea and a ho 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 mug. So. Do you need me to take a picture of this? This Do you need me to screenshot and send it to your mom? Maybe we can put it, if we remember in whenever this episode actually gets published, we can put it on Twitter maybe. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. So as we said, this is episode four of season one of The Americans in Control. Our director today is Jean de Sagonzac. Uh, and it's written by Joel Fields and Joe Westberg, the two showrunners of this show. Uh, Danielle, how did IMDb summarize this episode for us? Okay, so the IMDb episode summary is, after President Reagan is nearly assassinated, events quickly start to spin out of control. FBI wonders if the KGB is somehow behind it. The KGB worries that they will be blamed for it and possibly result in war. That's a surprisingly good IMDb summary of an episode considering how much it captures the urgency the crisis the who is in charge the is this a coup the maybe this we're all gonna die (laughs) philip and elizabeth have a bunch of weapons hitting and hitting so many weapons (laughs) energy of this whole endeavor here in this episode and i think a word that uh came up as we were discussing this episode before we started recording danielle is just the increased scale of this episode and what are some of like the main ways that you see that happening yeah so when i was watching this episode i was really struck by just like how we it felt like a level up right like Last week, we're hanging out, we're, like, fighting with Gregory in the safe house, we're, like, having some exchanges in, like, dark tunnels and driveways. In this episode, like, there are many people and institutions and organizations involved. There are, like, there is the threat of, like, World War Three. There are massive guns hidden in a, like... Uh, in a bomb-rigged chest, like, somewhere in the woods. Elizabeth has to literally defuse a bomb before, like, pulling out, I don't know. Bombs. Explosives. (laughs) Bombs, explosives, but also, like, these huge guns. So I think, like, scale in terms of that, in terms of, like, the stakes, but then also scale in terms of, like, in terms of violence. So, again... There's obviously been some violent stuff that's happened up until now, but I was really struck when Elizabeth just like no hesitation put a bullet in the head of the neighborhood security guard. Like it just felt like that coupled with these, no, these huge guns, like and uh, you know like explosives, that things were getting really violent really quickly in a way that at least until now felt unprecedented. 
Yeah, and not they're they're taking those guns around to scope out the members of the U.S. cabinet, right? They're outside Casper Weinberger's house when they get stopped by the neighborhood security guy, mm-hmm. who Elizabeth then, like, total in cold blood, uses a silencer to run a gun to kill him and, like, holds his head down so he doesn't make a sound when that happens. And it's, like, very intimate as in, as much as it is violent. Like, it is very up close and personal and literally yeah. hands-on in that moment. So in that sense, there is for sure that kind of the, in, the intimacy of that violence. Um, and then as you point out, there's the largest scale violence possible threatened. Yeah. For everything from the supposed guerrilla mission that Philip and Elizabeth are going to engage in if it's world war and they have to in, you know, engage Operation Christopher, as it's called. I have thoughts about that name, but we can get to it after this. <laughs> um, so they have like plans in advance for how they're going to commit sabotage and assassination or destruction with all of these explosives or whatever. Not to mention the fact that everybody involved in this, again, the IMDb summary actually uh, captures this in the spinning out of control both the Americans and the Soviets are worried that this is a cover to launch a nuclear attack on the other. And like, they are both very, very concerned. Um, And that affects Philip and Elizabeth in interesting ways. Fully agree with that. I, I also think the, like, it feels like Claudia, like the entry of Claudia has ratcheted up the stakes a fair amount, or maybe I'm just associating this sort of like this, uh, level up with her entry, but like, there's something, I don't know. I, I felt like in the first two and a half episodes, like, okay, there's some stressful stuff happening, but Philip and Elizabeth seem at least for the most part to like, be able to have it in control. Right. So I think like, good use of the episode title in this is, podcast episode. There you go. Danielle's a pro. <laughs> But, like, it it really feels like with the entry in of this third party that we don't know a ton about and that I have some questions about, like, <laughs> truth and her relationship to truth, that that is part of what is, is like, putting us in this tailspin. It is. And it's interesting the way that the announcement by the show that the stakes are going to be higher, things are going to be more difficult, things are going to be more on edge, happens not immediately associated with Claudia, but then because she enters right after that and gives a version of that back to Philip upon their first actual conversation, not the diner conversation, but when Philip um, accosts her on the streets of quote-unquote Philadelphia, she (laughs) gives the same thing, like things are going to change speech to him. But then we as an audience only have her to associate that as the concrete entry or shift of that because we haven't seen General Zhukov again, who was there in episode one and a tiny bit in episode two. We don't have, you know, there's no direct contact, obviously, between Philip and Elizabeth out in the field and Arkady Ivanovich or Vasily Nikolaevich or anyone else in the embassy. So Claudia has to become the kind of cipher for us as an audience about that escalation. Well, yeah. And I would say like, I think that that's right. But, but I would say that in this episode, the association that we have between Claudia and that escalation, I think is cemented a bit more because 
And it's the scene where Elizabeth pulls up and is like expecting there to be what I'm assuming is like later on on the bridge where they like pull a note, like expecting an information drop in that way, like some sort of like code being passed. And Claudia gets out of the car and there's like the camera lingers on her as she walks over to Elizabeth's car in such a way that it's like, okay, this is not normal. And then we get Elizabeth saying later on, like, it was in person. And we get Claudia saying, like, I had to do it in person. There was no time. Mm-hmm. And then we get Elizabeth reiterating that. So I think, like, all this to me is that we are right to associate this escalation with Claudia, not necessarily as, like, the causal mechanism, but as, like, part of uh, part of that mechanism that is pushing us to this next level. And even in that scene where Elizabeth and Claudia meet in person, they have this minute long or so conversation about and starting operation or preparing for operation Christopher and sabotage and violence or whatever, that they don't know who's in control of the U S government. They're worried that they're going to try to pin it on the Soviets, all of that. And then after they run through all of that, Elizabeth is like, this is the first time I'm actually talking to you. Right. So they, they have to comment on the fact that it is the first conversation between the two of them. Yeah. uh, Actually in the entire run of the whole show. Yeah, and, like, what I didn't love about that conversation was when Claudia was like, I've just heard so much about you. I'm like, ooh, I... (laughs) Nope. No thank you. Kick her out of the car. Drive away. I am no longer a spy. Like, you are... I I don't like it. It just... My hackles went up. I don't like it. Yeah. And that's also where we get a tiny bit of Claudia backstory. She said that she was a spy behind yeah. enemy lines in Stalingrad um, for two years during World War II. For the non-history buffs in our audience or me, do you want to like talk a little bit about like what that might have been, like what she meant, what the potential there was? Yeah, in the sense that, I mean, something like, I believe it's like uh, almost a million people died in Stalingrad. It was a several year long battle um, that was considered by the Soviets to be like the point where they turned back. The Nazi invasion um, is how it functions. It was contested over a relatively small, like territory size. Um, a lot of it was like very intimate, like house to house sort of conflict. Yeah. Um, so I've been to Volgograd, um, which is the now the name of what was Stalingrad. Um, by far the most affecting memorial or statue mm. I have ever seen in my life wow. is at Stalingrad or Volgograd uh, as it is right now. It's interesting, like, thank you for the description, because I think the thing that I was struggling with, but that you're helping clarify for me, is that it seems like Claudia's perspective on everything is itself from this level of, like, all violence all the time, or, like, this is an all-out war, and I think, like, that point about Stalingrad and what Stalingrad was, and that it's, like, in the midst of this not Cold War, but Hot War. <laughs> I think that's what the IR folks say, yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Danielle and I are not, like, military people. No. National like, relations people. We sometimes like know some history. Conflict. But, but, but I think, like, that point, sort of, part of what was, what is interesting about, about Claudia and this whole, like, discussion of scale is that, I think 
her backstory lets us know that like her approach is approaching like an expecting scale, like minute to minute conflict, right? Like man to man combat. And that's not the moment that we're in. And so like, I'm already sensing this tension between at least like, and we see this play out right with Philip and like being a little bit of a grounding uh, force in the episode and Elizabeth being somewhere in between, but there is clearly like, there's clearly some tension between Claudia's approach and what Philip and Elizabeth are used to. And I'm interested to see how that plays out. And the expectation that like, we are in the midst of this like deadly conflict right now versus like, we are playing a long game. Like where do, where do those bombs start to go off? Right. There are two additional points to make, I think, on that, on the discussion of Elizabeth and Claudia, and they're of two very different scales. And so the small scale is to say that presumably Claudia views Elizabeth as a younger version of her. Yeah. Or if they do indeed need to launch Operation Christopher and Elizabeth is working as a woman spy behind enemy lines, which I'm assuming is also part of Claudia's thinking here. Yeah. Um, she is doing what Claudia, Elizabeth would be doing what Claudia was doing in Stalingrad and, right. um, you know, in 19, early 1940s. Right. In the next giant major global conflagration war right. from the perspective of the Soviet narratives. Now then the bigger scale is, so this, I'm going to really hit the scale point hard. Oh, I love it so much. In Volgograd today, and the thing that is so was so affecting to see is there's this hill that slopes upward where some of the most intense fighting of the Battle of Stalingrad took place. Midway up the hill is this mausoleum that is also the tomb of the unknown soldier in okay. Russia at the top of the hill where you're literally walking along above the bones of tens, hundreds yeah. of thousands of people. Um, which they make clear as well at this site is a 45, 50 meter tall iron statue of mother Russia. Whoa. Um, Ow. <laughs> holding a like gigantic sword in one hand above her head. And, and a so there's hammer and sickle in the other. <laughs> I, I don't think so. I don't think so. I would not be surprised, um, but okay. So the, sword. the internet says no. Um, so it's just the sword. Um, and so there's something about the way that's choosing Claudia's character to have fought in Stalingrad in particular places her and places the show and then thus places Philip and Elizabeth in this gigantic narrative mythologization that all nations undergo. And one of the most alien sites of that national mythology um, in Russia, from what I could tell, was indeed the Battle of Stalingrad. Was indeed yeah. that yeah. it's there that you have this statue, which is Mother Russia, interestingly enough, right, is this statue. Um, and so th that Claudia is bringing all of that mythology with her yeah. to the particular form of escalation that she's yeah. helping drive in the show is notable, I think. I think that's right. I think that's right. And I think it's helpful to sort of think about how sort of the real world representations of these things, because I do think that that's one thing the show does really well is sort of like it's bringing, it's bringing in things that are, that are happening or have happened in the world, um, which I think just like grounds the show in a particular way. So it makes like, I appreciate the sort of thinking about how 
like what this statue represents and how the Russians have chosen to represent this moment. And then like how that is perhaps being channeled through Claudia in a particular way. Um, Yeah. And Danielle and producer Amy and I did write a paper about statues recently. (laughs) Oh my God. It's no surprise. (laughs) (laughs) It's no surprise that uh, we wanted a, a statue digression here. But to pick up on one of the points you were making about the kinds of escalations that are at play, we see, as we've discussed even already, the spycraft is very methodical and they're really interested in the minutia of the spycraft throughout the Americans in the first season, for sure. And there's an increasingly ways in which they're showing how the spycraft works, whether it is the the example you gave of, well, Claudia couldn't wait for them to see the signal and then go to the meet. So she just goes out of protocol to meet Elizabeth on the bridge, whether it's the way that Stan and Amador are surveilling the possible meeting between Nina and Stan. Stan has clearly set up this code and he calls Nina at the embassy, which is a huge no-no and a big threat to her. Right. And so just the multiple levels of the spycraft that happens throughout um, this episode, and then obviously Philip and Elizabeth in this van outside the Weinberger household. So there's another place in which the gigantic threats or fears or concerns or anxieties or paranoia that exists then get filtered down to or contrasted with or mirrored by or something like that with the munitia and the details of here is how we go about the business of doing the spy stuff. Yeah, I have to take us on a slight digression because I just Great. realized this. We just did moment. monument digression time, so I'm ready for you to initiate digression. This is spycraft digression. I can't. I can't believe I've never watched the show before because I think like the first book I called my favorite book was a book we read in fifth grade about like the devil's I think it was called like the devil's spy ring and it's like about the area that I'm from on Long Island and like like spies for Washington against the British and like the woman would would hang like a red like blanket on if like there was going to be a like information drop or if the ship was going to come in I obviously do not remember the details but I do remember just like being so excited that the sort of like these mundane acts such as like walking by someone on the street or hanging up a particular, like putting a particular set of laundry on a clothesline or like calling up someone at an embassy and asking about a party, like things like that, those things could have this deeper meaning. I do feel like this is a moment where my like, Oh, this is such an interesting show. And I'm fascinated by it and fascinated by the spycraft and the like, political theory what what is truth like <laughs> does objectivity even re- even exist question which i think the show is raising for us all the time anyway right because- including with the spycraft itself so here i'm thinking of the scene where stan is trying to meet up with nina and he and amador are in the like 
back room of some abandoned restaurant or something, spying on the street where the meet is supposed to happen. And the camera is switching back from a camera that is watching them. Yeah. Or two, actually. There's one that's watching the window where they're looking out of and yeah. one in, like, the room that's next to it. Yeah. And those two are toggling back and forth with a camera, like, that's on the street watching what is happening. Yeah. As if we were looking through, not almost as if we were looking through the binoculars that they are using yeah. to look through on the street. Yep. Which then gets all tied together at this moment in which Nina uh, finally leaves the embassy. She makes up an excuse, which is to go spy on the aides to the to Congress people at the bar in I DC, mean, which great idea. Great Nina idea. Nikolai, also, I felt very happy that that actually was a thing that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I was worried for Nina and I was worried that she, that the excuse didn't have any backing to it. Right. Because Vasily Nikolaevich sends another embassy person Lackey. to spy on <laughs> Nina. Yeah. Right. Um, and Nina almost gets like her cover blown, quote unquote, because Stan is walking by. He notices that another car pulls up right behind Nina's taxi and seems weird about it so they just keep walking by one another but we get that first because um chris in the window sees it but doesn't like basically doesn't call it in so we know that that car is following nina and we also know that someone has been sent to follow her and now the tension in the tension in this moment is is stan going to realize that this is someone like is stan good enough or on his toes enough in this moment to realize what's going on. And Chris and Stan argue about that back at the FBI office afterwards. Yes. And we're going to get into that in Danielle Dossier. (laughs) The question that you kind of used to frame this discussion, Danielle, is is about escalation. Yeah. Or the amping up of the violence or the spycraft or Mm -hmm. the stakes or however you want to frame it. And the question of who is doing the escalating is the central question and the central point of argument for so many of the characters in the show itself, right? So back in the, um, I don't know if this was in a safe house or back in the laundry room at home, Mm -hmm. Philip and Elizabeth are having the conversation about, Elizabeth is, of course, like the, you know, we don't know what the U.S. is doing. Al Haig, which like, I guess shouts out Al Haig, uh, seems to be launching a coup. We have to call this in. We're worried they're going to start a nuclear attack against the Soviet Union, et cetera, et cetera. And Philip is really, really digging in and arguing with her in this particular moment as well by saying that who's actually doing the escalating? Who went to go defuse the bomb with our, that's holding the casket with our bombs in it in the woods? Who's getting ready to launch this like large scale guerrilla attack against the American government? you know, if we call it in, aren't we the ones doing the escalating? So this question of who is at fault for the increased violence or increased threat of violence is the central point of disagreement between Philip and Elizabeth in this episode. And I feel like the other way to think about it, right? Like who's doing the escalating or who's in control, right? Like that's the, that's the question that, and who thinks they're in control versus like, Mm. like versus not, And, like, that's where so much of the tension comes in. And I think, like, to your point about, like, who's doing the escalating, I feel like the way that they, the the note the episode ends on where we get this 
interaction with Stan and his wife, Sandy, and, and Stan is sort of telling Philip and Elizabeth and Sandy, like what's, what's been going on all day where they get like that last dump of information that then Philip's back in the woods. Like, Wine time. Yeah. <laughs> Wine time. Wine time. Just like, okay, just got to program these codes. Cool. 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 <laughs> um, I did really appreciate when we got to see like how they send these spy messages, but, um, but anyway, like what we get in that moment is they, Philip and Elizabeth have been quarreling over this question of like, who's doing the escalating, who's in control. And you sort of see on Philip's face, like, Oh my God, like we were, we were really, we were doing the escalating here. Like it's like this moment of recognition. Like he's been, at least this is how I read it. Like he's been trying to like regain control of this spinning out and like a little bit of like, I was right. Like Stan sort of telling us that like, I was right. But like, that doesn't seem like a mode he is used to being in. He's not used to being right. He's not used to being in control. Right. And in fact, for an episode called in control and for an episode for which, as you point out, the question of who is in control is a central question. Literally zero people are actually in control of anything at any point. Nobody, right? Not the FBI, not the KGB, not Stan, not Philip and Elizabeth. Like nobody is in control. No one has their shit together at all in this episode. I mean, I would also argue that no one is ever in control. And the fiction that we tell ourselves in modernity is that someone (laughs) is in control. Like I was having this... I was having a discussion with friends on Friday night about like universities and COVID protocols. Yeah. Um, and they were there at a different university than either you or I, but they were expressing frustration about how their university like hasn't stepped in or done anything or blah, blah, blah. Um, which is a, a critique that we can make of a lot of universities or other institutions. institutions. <laughs> right. But I think it raises the question of like, this I or it, it it highlights this point that like we pretend people are in control because it makes us feel better, but like I think what COVID exposed is that no one's actually in control, and that's the scariest thing of all. Brilliant. You come <laughs> to Not Quite Books TV podcast expecting a like good discussion of the Americans, you get all modernity is about is about the illusion of control in the face of entropy and chaos from one Daniel Hanley. So props to Danielle. I mean, like at the end of the day, like we can talk about and we can get into this a little bit more in the cave, but like we can can talk about like, Oh, we have agency. Like we have, we have control over this, right? Like what is agency typically thought to mean exerting some control over, but ultimately like, all of our agency is networked and like, and, and all of it's incomplete. Right. So like, yeah. Yep. Anyway, I'm going to stop ranting about control. No, please, please don't. <laughs> I will segue us back to Philip and Elizabeth yes. though, from your point about modernity though. Amazing. <laughs> Philip and Elizabeth try to assert control in a different way in this episode. Yeah. They like have scheduled a fancy getaway to a fancy hotel where they, like, they, obviously there are no cell phones, right? Where, like, they can't be reached and they call it, you know, taking the afternoon off. Like, they're not in the travel agent place. They're in this fancy hotel somewhere in the D.C. area where they, like, have sex together. They're lounging in bed afterwards. They feel, like, really lovely. It's probably the purest, 
like affection. Like they've had passion for one another before yeah. the scene at the end of the first episode in yeah. particular, but it's them lounging in bed together after they had sex in this fancy hotel room where we see like the most pure affection and love between them, arguably, yeah. at least in like the romantic register. And so they have attempted to uh, assert control over their lives and direct some intentional time together. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, they like put it on their Google calendar, you know, um, amid their like yeah. spying poly. They do not um, have Google calendars. <laughs> they have a straight up planner, like per- paper planner, like I do. Thank you very much. And this is contrasted by the fact that this episode, <laughs> their afternoon away, takes place when John Hinckley tries to assassinate Ronald Reagan, which they realize only as they are walking back down through the lobby of the hotel. So there's, there's, yeah. they, they also cannot assert the control they wish to assert over their own love or sex life together. Yeah, I will say just like, side note, I was, my like heart was really warmed <laughs> when they took the afternoon off. But then it's also like, of course, like national security is at DEFCON 97 <laughs> because like some, some dude tries to shoot Reagan. The thing that's really interesting about this, just another one quick note on the assassination attempt and like it coming into the story is, we obviously like know how this plays out in history, but at that moment in the episode, it's like, it wasn't clear to me if this was, if this was going to be like 100% how it mm, happened in like reality. History. Yeah. Like, so th- there was some, it felt like because so often these episodes are like at least occurring in our historical past. So like there was going to be some some tr- like truth to it, but didn't necessarily have to be beholden to the story. Like, but that was sort of interesting. But the other thing is like, I, I appreciated their, the, the contrast between their attempt to exert some control over their own intimate lives. Right. And their relationship that they have with each other, which is a thing that they haven't had any control over until like very recently. And that's been this major theme that we get that they're trying to cultivate this intimacy, like after these years of, of like not having that. And I think that that's, that's really interesting also in terms of thinking about this isn't necessarily the same. It's not the same question of scale, but like, I do think that there is a question of like, of stakes with regard to Philip and Elizabeth that, that enter into the story that are each episode sort of in greater and greater tension with the, like the, the spying of it all. Right. Yeah. As we've already quickly identified this intertwining of the spying, the nationalism, the violence, et cetera, with the intimate sphere or with intimate lives is something that we are really interested in the Americans. Yeah. And here in this episode, it takes this form of, they have this moment of sex and love and connection and intimacy together to several of their most intense disagreements yeah. that we've seen so far in the episode, right? The this, you know, the debate about who's escalating, yeah. the, you know, what should they do about uh, about their Operation Christopher, 
And they argue, Philip says, you still don't understand. Elizabeth says, I remember where I came from. They're all, you know, they're all terrible. Um, you know, we're going to do it my way, Philip says. Those so intense moments of arguments. And back to a point you made, I don't know, 15 minutes ago, Danielle, Philip is correct, right? And then at the end, they agree on that. Yeah. And right? Elizabeth says, "It's I'm glad we did it your way. And Philip is like, yeah, but we can never let them know. Yeah. We never let anybody know that, <laughs> like, that we, that we withheld intelligence that Al Haig apparently was in control of the nuclear arsenal for some period of time today. Yeah. And I mean, just to add to just to add like another sort of like dynamic in there, there is this moment where um, this is before they've had these, these more major disagreements, but they're sort of going back and forth and they're like, okay, like this is after we've, we've got the, like the box of guns in the woods. And my notes there are say box in the woods, coffin, question mark, supplies, question mark. What supplies need to be buried? Guns. Whoa. This escalated quickly. So I really was like, (laughs) having (laughs) that was like really where my brain was at but immediately after that there's this exchange and elizabeth mentions greg like reaching out to gregory and philip just gives her this death stare (laughs) like and and i i was like impressed by that and i think that's another moment where we get this sort of like there's a subtlety to this that is also, and like, and the situation between them is delicate and they're trying to navigate it, but like all of these other external fires, like threaten to sort of encroach upon their, like the little safe structure that they're building together. And in the end, they use a member of Gregory's team to get the government license plate car that they use to pretend to be deputy chiefs of staff for the vice president. Um, There's another way in which I think a similar dynamic plays out that that I believe you're interested in in this episode, Danielle, and that is this conversation at the end between Sandy and uh, Stan. Yes. So I was really like, I was really taken aback by this. And I think this is another moment where like, I, I think what I, one of the things I appreciate about the show is the movement between the like national security exclamation point stuff and the like in our kitchens, in our laundry rooms, in our, in our bedrooms, in our forest like <laughs> weapon caches, hutches, whatever, <laughs> um, where we get this sort of like the deep interpersonal such. intensity, right? And so I thought, like between Stan and Sandy, just the exchange where where she's like, "I, this is like some," he can tell that something's wrong, and, and then he's like, "It's just not the same." I'm trying. That felt like heartbreaking to me. Mm-hmm. But it also felt like something that I think it would have been really easy for four episodes into a show that's got so much going on and that like these are side characters, at least at this point, right? For that level of emotional intimacy and rawness to feel earned, I think like that's a pretty impressive accomplishment. And I was was quite moved both by um, Sandy, who the actress is Susan Meisner. I I was like really impressed by like just the the level of commitment between both of those actors yeah. in that moment. Uh, and I think it gets back to this like 
sort of this interesting juxtaposition between the like massive scale and the like incredible levels of intimacy we get in these sort of stolen moments. Right. That's a great way to frame it, particularly because we also see one of the like cruelly ironic ways that Philip and Elizabeth's marriage or relationship can work in a way that Stan's and Sandy's cannot. And that at least Philip and Elizabeth are basically totally honest with one another. You know, Philip didn't know about <laughs> Gregory. Like, well, that's true. Daniel, Daniel Dossier might think otherwise. Daniel um, Dossier thinks otherwise, but I think like what you're saying is that there is at least the ability to, to like be yeah, there's a there's a framework to have that conversation yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. understanding <laughs> where Stan was uh undercover as part of a white supremacist drug running biker gang in Arkansas for however many years. Yeah. And they barely saw each other. And so there's and Stan says, I don't know how to shift out of that mode, right? I'm trying to your point, but I don't know how to do this. And yeah. that's not quite a barrier that Philip and Elizabeth have to surmount. Yeah, well, and like they're right, like part of what what Stan is telling us in that moment, and we've gotten a little bit of this before, but like we're getting it, we're really getting it there, is that like they basically had no contact for those two years, right? Like yeah. and that makes I think sense. It was four years, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. So like so they basically have no contact for 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 those years. So there's this whereas Philip and Elizabeth, their entire relationship up until this point is predicated on this like fake marriage. So like they're only having contact. So there is this like pretty famous case of um, an Israeli spy, Eli Cohen, who, or I guess it's Ellie Cohen. Sorry. Um, I believe you've watched spy, correct? Yeah. And you know, who's in spy and the Mossad is Noah Emmerich playing play Stan, the FBI agent. So <laughs> there's many connections between the... But I, but I was, that's amazing. And like, now I'm like, I literally this whole time I've been like, where do I know him from? Okay. That's where I know him from. But the thing that I was, that, that struck me in just thinking about like Stan's situation and, and this idea of being undercover, like the thing that, that like breaks Cohen is that he feels this need to be in contact with his wife back in Israel. Yeah. And that's ultimately the thing that gives him up. Right. And so, like, I think we also get from Stan this level of commitment that he had, like where and and having to sort of disabuse oneself of these connections, which which, again, we get like a complete juxtaposition to Philip and Elizabeth, who have had to abuse themselves of connections. Right. Like they like (laughs) that's their whole thing is is all of these like different entanglements that they have with each other, with other people like that that so much of this is happening within the this the this intimate sphere without without a level of intimacy yeah. um and so it like it's an in, it's a really fascinating mirror with Stan and Sandy it is there's one other character for whom this episode's a major escalation and that is Nia Nikolaevna right so she gets called by Stan at the embassy as we mentioned above and then when they finally meet up, she tells him, you can't ever do that. This isn't a game. This isn't a joke to me. Yeah. You know, my life became very scary the moment you entered it, right? She understands the constant threat of violence that she is under. Yeah. 
and is uh, totally accurate because we pointed out Vasily Nikolaevich sends somebody after her to spy on her yeah. uh, as she leaves the embassy. So there's also the way in which Nina Nikolaevna, who is just, you know, going about her life as a attache, cultural attache or whatever in the embassy, um, but like maybe also <laughs> working for the KGB, definitely like violating Soviet laws by, you know, tr- exchanging caviar for speaker systems or whatever. But like wild storyline. <laughs> I still can't believe that happened in episode two. That oh was the caviar storyline. Uh, and for her, this episode becomes a major escalation of the danger and threat and fear in her own life as well. Yeah. And I, um, I think like the thing that I was, af- I was afraid for her. Right. Like, and I think that, that, reaction says to me that 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 ratcheting up or like that the elevation of the stakes the raising of the stakes for Nina are like meant to be felt because I don't know like the first time we get her I'm like okay like here's some now the FBI is trying to trying to turn someone this is like Mm -hmm. FBI doing bad things right Mm -hmm. and this now I'm like oh god and and I was really afraid for her this episode is in some ways, as you point out, it's also an escalation for her stakes as a character. And in some ways, she becomes one of the main characters along with Philip and Elizabeth and Stan as a result of this very episode. Interesting. I'm That's sort of, I'm fascinated to see like how that plays out. Then there were two characters providing some sort of meta commentary oh. on literally basically <laughs> everything we've just discussed. And that is our first meeting of Matthew Beeman, Stan and Sandy's son. Uh, who is bantering several times with Paige. Um, Several times. The first time they uh, are sitting on the couch watching news about the assassination. The news keeps replaying the seven seconds of footage or whatever, the assassination attempt. And Paige is like, this is morbid. It becomes hollow after repeating it so many times. It's like maybe the question of how much the violence is depicted as a deeper moral weight to it. And she's wondering as an audience member might wonder what about all of the violence on this show? Is there meta commentary? Number one, <laughs> then meta commentary. Number two from Paige and Matthew is Paige goes back to apologize. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, because, you know, Matthew's dad is an FBI agent. She's like, Nate, I didn't realize how maybe today was very scary for you. And that leads to them joking a series of jokes back and forth. Like, ha ha ha. Being a travel agent must be really dangerous. You got to worry about delayed flights and in this moment, <laughs> in this moment, while Philip and Elizabeth are driving around with their explosives around the suburbs of DC. I was literally like, okay, the show is playing with me right now because they know that I think that Paige knows everything. And now we've got this back and forth with Matthew about like, <laughs> how scary could it be to be a travel agent? That only makes sense if Paige knows that they are not travel agents. <laughs> but I, I, I am with you. Like, I do think like it is, it is fascinating to have this meta commentary, which the episode does seem to be like self-aware of. And which I think is part of why it's why it's funny that we get it from the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, your whole theory, right, is that they're not they're not really that kid like, or at least Paige is in. Any any first impressions of Matthew Beeman as a character? He'll be back. 
I wasn't loving the hair choices. <laughs> they felt a little too 90s. This is a great point. <laughs> but like This is a great point. I, I, like Although I will say we will later find out that Matthew Beeman is in a band. And so like he's, he like it's like light like dorkiest 80s version of hair metal available to him at the time is his hairstyle. Okay. Okay. That, I, I think I think that makes sense in universe. I'll allow it, but I <laughs> I did feel like, oh, is it 1994 because every boy in my class had that haircut in fourth grade, like <laughs> this this has been a perfect segue, Danielle. Like another pro job by you for <laughs> our segment called Bar Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s, Amazing. which uh, you were supposed to intro, but I'm introing because you set us up for a segue and I wanted to give you credit for it. I love it. Um, and we've touched on this, obviously, but there's a lot of Reagan in this episode. Oof. The Reaganness of this episode, I feel like if... I feel like oftentimes in this segment, which, by the way, I still do not know what it means and still have not looked it up, we'll chalk it up to laziness and or just, like, I'm really committed to, like, learning when we actually learn. Yeah, I want it to be a moment of pure surprise and, like, why why the fuck did John blow this up so much? It's so ridiculous. I love it so much. Okay, anyway. Um, But we often in this segment are, like, commenting on like the campiness of the 80s choices i think last time we talked about like racquetball and we talk about hair in this segment i've definitely insisted we've had two racquetball conversations there will be more i feel great about it we could we could rename this like the (laughs) like the subtitle could be like racquetball watch 2022 (laughs) and i'm fine with that um, but I did feel like the 80, the Reaganness and like the extreme amounts of Reagan in this episode made it made the the sort of link to the eighties much more gritty than campy. And I, I like that's a tone shift that I think is just worth noting. Um yeah. 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 And as you point out, r- immediately before we get the news from the show that Reagan has been shot. There's a brief close-up of the, or maybe it's right after. It's right after we find out, and we get this close-up of this gigantic ass portrait Huge. of Reagan in the FBI counterintelligence office. Which, I, like, I was a kid in the '80s, and it did feel like I was. I would have been, yeah, like, like four, like three or four or five, like in the mid '80s, right? So I do have this memory of lots of pictures of Reagan. Now my parents are. We're definitely not Reagan supporters <laughs> at all. They are like capital D Democrats. <laughs> they're still talking about like, they're still angry that people got mad about Hillary's emails. So it's like, <laughs> there were no Reagan portraits in any of my family, but I do have this like that. There was something about that portrait where I was like, I really did feel nostalgia for it. I was like, yep, that's perfect. <laughs> When I was in Wisconsin, uh, I was dating someone for a while, a long time, in uh, who lived in Dixon, Illinois, which is Ronald Reagan's hometown. Oh, Jesus. So, like, I've literally, like, spent much time in Ronald Reagan's hometown. There's a statue of him sitting on a horse. It's out of, created at a very odd scale in the downtown alongside the Rock River. Was Reagan on he a was, horse like, a, a thing? I was also a lifeguard. Okay. Well, so. I'm sure... I'm sure in the I'm sure that in the Oh, like in, in a movies, Western he must Yeah, have, yeah, yeah. You're right. He must have had some iconic character or whatever the fuck. Um 
Okay. Other bar nostalgia that you'd like to share? There's there's some strong energy from the TVs strapped to like a rolling oh, cart <laughs> that brought back lots of memories of childhood. Like granted, I was in school in the nineties rather than the eighties, but like lots of elementary school, let's roll in the laser disc yeah, player yeah, yeah. on the cart with the TV. <laughs> Um, the only other thing sort of like in this mode is this isn't exactly what was happening in the episode, but the, like those number letter pads that Philip and Elizabeth are using to like send transmissions Mm -hmm, did mm -hmm. give me like major eighties vibes. And also not that I ever had one, but it like felt like an Atari game. pad. (laughs) Like there was something (laughs) about the electronics that screamed 80s, even the ones being used for spycraft, which probably means that they were like from the 50s. <laughs> I I wonder if that I hadn't ever made this thought or connection before, but I wonder if the show's doing that on purpose because they'll actually note like the introduction of Atari or whatever oh, yeah? the Jennings or if this is the Jennings or the Beamins, one of them is going to have a like early early video games console. So. Nice. Um, I, two, two other notes on Bio Nostalgia. One is the show opens actually not with the assassination attempt. It's not their first historical touch point, but there's, it happens once and then it comes back one or two other times later in the episode is the solidarity movement. Yes. Trade unionists in Poland, Solidarnost. Um, and it's just, you know, I don't have much of an idea beyond that just to say that, like, there's this contrast that they're making between uh, Solidarnost and then the Reagan assassination is like, those are the two historical touch points in this episode. Well, and I would just add to that when Elizabeth, and I think this is like when um, that's on TV in Philip and Elizabeth's home and yes. Paige is like, oh, something, something like that's what I learned in school. And then Elizabeth is like, <laughs> bourgeois propaganda. Is that what they're teaching you about Russia? And I like, I wrote in my notes, okay, like kid conspiracy watch 2022. Like, it, like that felt, I, I feel like that was a let's rile mom up <laughs> moment. Uh, so yeah, I just like, in addition to, the sort of action this as an actual historical touchstone i think another sort of like borrowed nostalgia from the from the the 80s is just unremembered unremembered 80s i actually remembered them unremembered 80s is (laughs) this idea that like everything we learned in school about russia was like totally tainted by like propaganda um which is like very much our generation right like like there's there's a lot of stuff that I feel like if I said to Elizabeth in universe, like this is what I learned in school about Russia. In fact, like here's this map that we had that like, then we had to like put a different like form of Russia over or whatever it was. That also feels like borrowed nostalgia, just like yeah. learning the wrong thing. <laughs> Permanent borrowed nostalgia and yeah. borrowed nostalgia for that matter. That's just what I apparently was going to say. <laughs> um, and then our final nostalgia is um, checking on the music in this episode. Just a great Echo in the Bunnymen moment nice. over this really, really cool montage that the show does. The show is not like montage heavy in a way that like Breaking Bad or something is. But when there are the occasional montages set to a good music, I enjoy it well and i do feel like the show is really good about choosing good music yeah 
great music choices that'll only continue. Like there'll be music mm, sub sub subplots going on down the line. I I can't wait. I am quite sad that the rock doesn't become a musical force until much later <laughs> than the eighties, but here we are. I mean, I, I can't even say whether it'd be possible to have a like check in with these characters <laughs> 30 years later. Did one of them like have a family member, a, like a grandchild or great grandchild? that could listen to that could watch Moana listen to your welcome. We don't even, you don't even know. We don't know. We can, we can imagine. <laughs> we can imagine. Um, there's a lot of imagination taken with our minor <laughs> character of the week as well. Um, just like oh, this yeah. absurd character. This named, is a good one. Named Charles Duluth. Uh, um, played wonderfully by Red Rogers, who I don't know from anything else. In but, a great uh, set piece of an office. Yeah, great <laughs> set piece of an office. Charles Duluth is a Soviet asset who Question is masquerading <laughs> as a like conservative intellectual William F. Buckley asshole type at a magazine. I kid you not, called in universe the conservative statesman, which is just the most, let's make fun of, you know, the National Review <laughs> yeah. or whatever yeah. uh, sort of name you could come up with. Charles Duluth is quite the name. Then there's this other additional layer that I think we can appreciate the character of Charles Duluth in. So Charles Duluth is masquerading as a former socialist, now conservative. Yeah. But in fact, he is working with Philip and knows that Philip is associated with the KGB. Yeah. So that the show is commenting on the phenomenon (laughs) of all these fucking neocons who started out as socialists in the 50s and by the 80s and 90s were, like, helped give birth, like, thank you, Strauss, to (laughs) neoconservatism in America. And, like, that the show... And recognizes that as something that happened intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah. So they could have Charles Duluth say, well, everyone gives me way too much credit because I say that I used to be a socialist and that now I'm a conservative. Ha ha. It's just I'm high s- <laughs> comedy to me. Same. And, and I love it. It's like, this is another, the show's so smart. Like it's in on the joke, right? Like it's in on the joke that like, <laughs> that, this former socialist is now a conservative, but actually still a socialist, which like (laughs) does seem to be like at least like one layer of conspiracy theory away from Fox news. Right. Like, (laughs) like, and, and how ridiculous all of that is. (laughs) And, and Charles, this is a character played by Red Rogers also looks like, if Nathan Lane oh my God, was yes. made to look like <laughs> William F. Buckley, like if you took half Nathan Lane and half William F. Buckley, you would have the character of Charles Stevens. I think the only thing about this character that I like didn't buy was that like this was his office and he's a journalist. This this had like major professor vibes to me. Major professor, like obnoxious, yeah. like shady professor. Yeah, which like. I think to your, to your (laughs) Buckley, yeah, to your like Buckley comparison, like totally, totally works. I wasn't so sold on like this, this dude's a reporter, but like, okay, that's fine. I love that he was like, oh yeah, yeah. You need the names of, uh, the aides to the vice president done. Easy. (laughs) Like, okay. Yeah. And I, and I guess is the, like, 
as a commentator or a columnist for the conservative statesman, LOL, maybe he gets a little bit better digs than if he was, you know, on the ground at the White House reporting or whatever. Yeah. Um, Should... Charles Duluth, <laughs> who, who is on TV, he's like, the show gives him credibility yeah. by putting him on TV to discuss the assassination. Right, 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 right. Um, <laughs> that on the news that the Jennings are, yeah. Jennings, I forget, are watching. Um, should we get into Danielle Dossier? I can't wait to hear what's inside the <laughs> dossier today. Okay. So I feel like the first thing in the dossier has to be the conflict that we get between Chris and Stan. Um, right. So Chris sees the car pull up behind Nina. He doesn't radio Stan, which like in the moment, I already thought that, that this dude's a double agent. And we visited that in a previous dossier, actually, yeah. correct? Yeah. So in the previous dossier, I think episode two. Um, that sounds about right. I, I, like, floated this theory. I feel like it has come home to roost, like, because now Stan suspects that uh, that Chris is a, is that something is up with him because he doesn't radio over. And Chris knows that Stan suspects him because at the end of the episode, he's like, I saw it and I didn't radio and Stan's like, just send it on the radio next time. But it really felt like a father reprimanding his son in a way that was just like, I'm disappointed in you. And there is an age difference between Stan and Chris Amador, right? Probably like Stan's probably about 10 years older than him or something. I would guess in the show. Yeah. And it like, it seems like because of Stan's, um, because of Stan's experience, because, like, the last sort of, like, assignment Stan's coming off of, he's just got, like, a lot more knowledge in the tank about all this stuff. And Stan gets a lot more shine at the office from Frank Gad um, <laughs> than Chris Amador does. Yeah, so I just feel like I, 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 this would... I think in a way that would be frustrating, but in a way that would also make sense, right? This would, I feel like, double down on some of the, like, more racist comments Stan has made about him. Yeah. Where, like, of course, the ethnic minority who we've commented on a million times in this show is also a spy. Mm -hmm. I don't love that, but I do feel like that is also another, like, that wouldn't surprise me. So, agreed. So that's like number one, the Danielle dossier. Number two is obviously like Paige knows everything, like, <laughs> which we've already revisited in an earlier segment. But I just wanted to like put it in here, like Paige knows everything. The uh, the like, oh my god, so dangerous to be a travel agent. Like that whole thing just screamed like she has to know. <laughs> um, I would say the other thing is. I think there are some, and this is like something that I think we're going to be revisiting a ton over the course of the series, but like, this was an episode where some of the questions I have about Elizabeth and like, how much is Elizabeth, how much is Elizabeth working Philip in a particular way that like, I feel like there were moments where I started to doubt that. But I do really think that by letting Philip call or like following Philip's lead and letting him call the shots, like I, that could lend credence to this broader idea that I, that I, this broader like 
conspiracy theory that I'm floating that like something else is going on here. Great, great theories all. Um, I have no comment uh, <laughs> on any of them. Amazing. I love it when you don't comment because it makes me feel like I've said something uh, that we're going to come back to. And I'm just going to keep pretending that that's the case. Now, the key thing is that no comment could mean because you got it exactly right. Yeah. And I'm incredibly <laughs> impressed. Or it could also be that it's totally wrong. And I'm thinking about what's actually going to happen. And I'm like, I feel mean for putting Danielle in the position of making wild predictions and conspiracies about this show. I want to be very clear. Both, it's a real both. It's and a real situation. both and, but also I want to be very clear. Like Danielle put herself in this in this <laughs> position. Danielle came in guns blazing and was like, "I got twenty conspiracy theories from minute number two. So don't feel bad and about that. What I take responsibility for is like, let's make a segment where every <laughs> single episode Danielle is compelled to come up with more conspiracy. This is like the one moment in my life where I'm totally fine having main character energy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, <laughs> let's let's go to gloss. Let's go to gloss. Okay. So first of all, in gloss, this just like being in the woods and sending messages of it all. Like I, I am not a horror movie person, but I was just like I feel stressed, and especially when Philip is there the second time by himself. Um, and he like hears a noise and something, and he like looks around. And I'm just like, oh god, like we, there's already been a lot of like stuff happening this episode. Like, but the woods and the messages of it all felt like we we had to mention it. We absolutely had to mention it. <laughs> Two other things that I do want to make sure we mention: yeah. one very minor and pedantic, and the other one perhaps more worthy of conversation. That. I was able to notice, to my sheer surprise and delight, let's be honest, that there was some of the Russian that was not no. translated in the subtitles. So, just interesting. Uh, when Vasily Nikolaevich tells Nina Nikolaevna that, okay, good idea, go spy on the congressional aides or whatever in the bar, and he says, you know, come back and tell me when you get back. There's an additional line in the Russian that is Tolkomenya, so only me, like, do not tell anybody else about this. Interesting. Which is A, shady, and B, will set up a future storyline. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, I feel like we, you need to, like, be on watch for that kind of stuff, because <laughs> I... It's a, like, lightning bolt of shock and surprise if I am ever going to pick up on a <laughs> single other example of that over the next 14 years as we watch this show. Amazing. I am obsessed with when the subtitles don't say the right thing. I, like, often watch <laughs> shows in Hebrew with my sisters, and like to tell them all about when the translation is off. And they're like, we don't care. But I just want to let you know that <laughs> I do care. So, like, please, whenever you've got it. I, I appreciate you uplifting my pedanticness. <laughs> um, not, not the first time. Won't be the last. Sure. <laughs> um, now, the thing that's perhaps a little more substantive than that for the glasses, what did you make of the two flashbacks to Elizabeth's childhood mm -hmm. with her mother that we got in this episode. So I have one surface level comment and then one deeper comment. I'll start right. surface I level. I want both of them very much. This did not look like a younger Elizabeth. 
like terrible casting. Oh, I totally disagree. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but like on, a- but I was also just into the like Soviet core <laughs> yeah. of the aesthetics. So maybe yeah. I, some of that rub off onto, yes, this doesn't, is yeah. indeed a six year old Elizabeth. Or I do think like to, on the point about aesthetics, like it does, it does bring us back to the, like the, if the eighties of it all in this episode is much grittier, the Soviet of it all is also much grittier, right? Like even the glasses grittier, like. So I think, like, that is, like, worth paying attention to. But, like, just in terms of the flashbacks, like, I I think that I wanted, I wanted more because it seemed like what we were getting is, like, some seeding for, for the decisions that she's going to be making. And I think, like, I wanted a little bit more, like... I needed the next beat of the story, right? Mm-hmm. I needed, and like, again, this is sort of the ra- the ratcheting up of scale. Like, it felt like this is how her mother is murdered or like, or that th- there was going to be something like with really big stakes coming in her childhood that would help us understand the decision-making processes that got her to being a KGB spy. And then like in, in that like produced tension in this moment, I didn't get enough of that, but I like, but I think it's okay to, like, want more from these things. Can I offer a theory that those stakes were actually there? Yeah, yeah. In those episodes? So if I'm understanding correctly the scenes, right? So they're, they're, we know that it takes place sometime soon after Stalin's death, right? So this right. is the explicit echo that's being made. Right. That there was chaos or uncertainty or whatever of or right. who would take control after after Stalin died, which is historically accurate as far as I know. Um, and some kind of local party official comes yeah. to Elizabeth's mother and Elizabeth's uh, apartment, right? Uh, I would assume. And we know that Elizabeth's father was killed in World War II. Yeah. Um, and this party official comes and is like, look at all this stuff I have. It just so happens to be in a gigantic chest, which is interesting considering other gigantic chests in this episode. And well, I was like, is it like, the same chest? <laughs> <laughs> and there's like sugar and there's grain and there's other like staples and necessities and like a few luxury items that look like as well or what would uh, count as luxury items at the time and i read as it an implicit like if you elizabeth's mother will like have sex with me you can have all this stuff that's how i was reading oh. the scene like the implied threat of sexual violence interesting um or or exchange or perhaps i should say or Maybe that's still sexual violence. Um, and Elizabeth's mother is then like, no, Nadia, like we rely on ourselves, right? We, we aren't going to go become dependent on this other person who wants me to do shady things or whatever, whatever yeah. strings would come attached with the, with the stuff. So there's, there's both the who can or should beyond herself, can Elizabeth slash Nadia rely on? That is also a what in what ways can sex and sexuality be used as an instrumental means or a weapon to acquire something? Yeah, that actually is helpful and clarifying because I think like I and I, I might have just missed it or or maybe the episode doesn't like doesn't lay it out clear enough for some for me um, to. I I didn't read the like the this question about like sexuality and and sexual acts into that scene but I think you're absolutely right to do that. So yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think like if that's the case, then the stakes are maybe are, are a little bit more there. I think I needed, I still needed the next beat. Like, what's the thing that happens when they say no? Yeah. Because I yeah. think that's the thing that I'm, that seems to be where we're building to Philip and Elizabeth, the like, the saying no, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. saying no in different ways. And Elizabeth is much more reluctant to say no than Philip is, right? He's like, no, oh, this is crazy. Like, we are doing the escalating. And she's like, no, 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 We got to do, like, when we say no, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. So I think, like, that's what I needed. But maybe we get that later. Maybe, indeed. We have one more segment to go. We have one more segment. Quite great books uh, where we talk about a not so great, great book. Um, <laughs> so we decided to again forego the roulette wheel of theory uh, for this episode because there is a giant sign flashing <laughs> oh around God. this episode if you are somebody like Danielle or I. And that sign says Carl Schmidt. Oh, yeah. So. Oh, Carl Schmidt, I would say, is not my favorite political theorist <laughs> um, for a variety of reasons. And I often think that people who are obsessed with Carl Schmidt, and there are plenty of political theorists who are, um, are, are like, they're just putting their, as edgy as they think it is. Yeah, they're putting their chips in a basket that no one cares about. Um, it's like, I just, I think a lot of Schmidt is pretty pedestrian, but like, that's fine. I'm over here hanging with Euripides and feeling great about it anyway. (laughs) But for our purposes, I think you're absolutely right. There's this like neon sign with an arrow. It's like in Beetlejuice, like with the Beetlejuice (laughs) sign, like if you couldn't find it, here's the arrow. Um, and for me, that arrow was pointing to Schmidt's idea of, of like the tension between friends and enemies. And I do feel like because there is like such conflict in this episode, the question of like who are like who's on our side and who's not is so important. But also the like knowing who's on what side is such a gray area in this yeah. episode feels like that's where that's where some of the Schmidt comes in, at least for me. Yeah. What kind and of- one of one of the reasons we had the giant Beetlejuice uh, sign of Schmidt is that Danielle and I had different Schmidt times <laughs> yeah. for this episode. That's why we are going into the cave with uh, Carl. Far inferior to other Carls we have at our disposal, yeah. which I'm sure we'll continue. The farest and inferior. <laughs> I hate Carl Schmidt. I just want to say that. But, again, we... We do this. For, we do it for love. We do it for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, we do. And what I could not avoid uh, in this episode is thinking about Schmidt and his notion of sovereignty is yeah. the one who decides the exception or the one who decides yeah. the exception to the law or to the rule or whatever. And then like, it's the decisionist aspect of that. It's the exceptional aspect of that. And obviously then Schmidt becomes important for Agamben and whoever else <laughs> um, down the line. Right. But in a show in which the episode is called in control yes, and you absolutely. spooled out your theory of control and modernity and which is not not Schmidtian, I would like to point out to you. That's fine. Um, but also, we didn't need Schmidt to get there, so. Also bad. I think that's um. my point. Like, that's the pedestrian <laughs> part of Schmidt. Like, you don't need Schmidt to, to know that there is conflict between friends and enemies. Like, thank you. <laughs> we get it. 
Um, <laughs> it's called life. <laughs> and just the, this question of who is the sovereign that is literally yes. making the decisions yeah. about the exception of nuclear war or not nuclear war is absolutely key to the political dynamics plot of this episode, right? Is it Al Haig? Is it yeah. the vice president? Um, is, who yeah. would have been H.W., correct? Yeah, H.W. I have to check, but uh, uh, is it H.W., right? Al Haig seems to be trying to take control. The press secretary is mentioned. Like, there's a lot of conflict over who actually is the one that's deciding the exception in the American government. And will that exception be, we're going to blame the Soviets and launch a nuclear attack or do whatever it is they're going to do. So simply to say that in the cave, this episode was throwing up on the walls the reflection of who's deciding the control who's deciding the exception honestly i love that because i was just about to say listen we're gonna leave schmidt chained to the wall in the cave <laughs> and feel okay about it all right schmidt we can never talk about again on this episode we, on this podcast we probably will i mean let's be um, honest but i will continue to show shit. is gonna i will continue to shit on schmidt but yes. maybe we'll Perfect. we'll retitle the cave <laughs> in those in those episodes the shit on Schmidt section. <laughs> Fair enough. Wow, I I knew Danielle did not like Carl Schmidt. I didn't know the depths until the past four. Minutes I don't of know my life. how to not like not aggressively. <laughs> you know what? I believe that very much. <laughs> That's where we're at, guys. Um, <laughs> I feel like that is a wonderful way to uh, wrap up this episode. Um, we it, want it sure is. Um, we, thanks to producer Amy. We always want to thank producer Amy, and uh, and we should say that coming up soon, probably not episode five, but perhaps episode six. Yeah, we might have our first guest co-host. And obviously, the first guest co-host will be the maybe made up, maybe not producer Amy. There's definitely a person named Amy. <laughs> is she, <laughs> is I mean, she a producer on this podcast? Great. You in, know what? In, in, we're gonna we're gonna ask her that very question when she comes on the, when when actual Amy comes on the podcast. Maybe our relationship to truth is oh. about as uh, loosey goosey as Elizabeth's. Um. we're gonna (laughs) definitely stop there because that is perfect and we will see you next time you'll listen to us next time maybe for Americans 1 episode 5 comment amazing Uh, we will see you next time on not quite great books a TV podcast bye on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Not Great Books TV. You can email us questions or comments that we might discuss on air to notgreatbookstv at gmail.com. Not Quite Great Books TV podcast is created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon and kind of indirectly the mythical producer Amy. You are listening right now and you heard at the beginning of the episode the song Electro Trends 60s by Less FM. We do enjoy that. Hopefully you will enjoy the next episode in which we will discuss episode five of season one of the Americans. Comment.